Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling with Leighton Working, as always, behind the scenes. Coming up on this episode, we'll be joined by Rod Sides, the Vice Chairman of U.S. Retail Wholesale and Distribution Leader at Deloitte. He'll be discussing their 2022 Retail Industry Outlook, which was just released a few days ago, and he'll discuss the ramifications from the Outlook. This is a document that's generated from a number of interviews from various retailers throughout the industry, as well as analysis of publicly traded companies. So some interesting findings for the year ahead. In news, we'll discuss a supermarket acquisition, and we'll look ahead to Midwest and Great Plains retail in the U.S., and more specifically, the outlook for those sectors in 2022. A quick reminder, you can check us out on Instagram and Twitter, at Retail Podcast. And also, if you enjoy the show, please do give us a positive rating. Those positive ratings help others to find our show and check us out. Quick note regarding next week's show, it will be delayed somewhat because I'll be on the road in Cincinnati. Unfortunately, no ability to carry some recording equipment with me during that trip, so it'll be delayed by just a couple of days, but we'll be back on schedule the week after that. All right, let's kick off our news segment as Save-A-Lot continues to divest their company-owned stores with their latest deal, this time in Florida. As some background and Bear with me, I'm going to spend a few minutes kind of fleshing out this background because I think it's important to the story and where Save-A-Lot is going as a company. Save-A-Lot's a business that's pretty much had a handful of smaller pivots over the past, oh, 10 to 15 years. It's designed to be a low price or budget grocer, but it wasn't that long ago that most Save-A-Lot stores weren't freestanding stores, but were in older neighborhood shopping centers often moving in. After a larger grocer moved out for the purpose of expansion, we saw this a lot. For example, with Kroger stores in the early 2000s, they would leave, they would vacate a space, and save a lot would move on in. As a result, most of their outlets were, and some still are, in the 20 to 30,000 square foot range. In smaller markets, their stores could be less than 10,000 square feet, and some of their newer footprints are less than 10,000 square feet as well. Even in a few circumstances, they've shrunk their square footage and either subleased out or worked with the landlord to find another tenant for the space that they've vacated. And Save-A-Lot's always had an option with licensing. So as a result, a good many of their stores are owned by independent operators who have agreements for distribution, marketing, and so forth. Going way back around 2009, Super Value had plans to massively grow the chain to over 2,400 locations. This would have been a doubling of their 1,200 stores at the time. But this initiative fizzled out within a few years, and the company has since shrunk from that around 1,200 stores to just over 1,000 in late 2020 to now less than the 1,000 mark today across 32 different states. They've got in the 930 store range, it's said. Now, in the last five years, they've gone about updating their brand image, starting with a new logo, but also continuing to a new store layout and format. I mentioned their smaller format stores, newer or renovated save-a-lots. Very reminiscent when you go in to an Aldi, 
particularly as it relates to their fresh sections and their massive private label selections. The vast majority of their merchandise is private label merchandise. So one would think a budget grocer such as Save-A-Lot would see success during pandemic conditions, as it's said that Aldi has done since the start of the pandemic. But since 2020, they've continued to tinker with things, Save-A-Lot has, and they're kind of, they seem dissatisfied with their place in the market. And most recently in December 2020, they reiterated their desire to focus more on wholesale and distribution as a company, something it's kind of ironic that others recently have tried to do. This in December 2020 came after Save-A-Lot itself was spun off in 2016 from Super Value in Super Value's own efforts to focus more on their wholesale business. Well, that's now what Save-A-Lot is attempting to do, focus more on their wholesale, more on their distribution. They want their stores to be licensed out as much as possible. And part of the most recent change in December 2020 seemed to have to do with the ownership change from Onyx to a group of multiple private equity firms in April of 2020. So now you've got a company who was mostly licensed or franchised out in the beginning. They want to be even more that in the future, and they want to focus on wholesale and distribution, retaining just a few stores in the St. Louis area, which is their home base. Anyhow, that more or less brings us current to today. This week, it was announced that 33 corporate stores have been sold to Ascend Grocery, LLC. This follows the gradual acquisition of 38 save-a-lots by a different company, Yellow Banana LLC, last year across the upper Midwest, Florida, and Texas. I, as much as I like that name, one of the things that strikes me as intriguing about it is certainly it doesn't seem all that evergreen. Yellow Banana is, after all, only ripe for a certain amount of time before it becomes brown and overripe, but we'll ignore that part of the name. As far as Ascend is concerned, though, they have an interesting backstory, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to cover this sale on the show. Ascend is headed up by Chris Sherrill, who actually founded Fresh Time, the fast-growing specialty and organics market based in the upper Midwest. He stepped down in 2019 as Gerald Melville stepped into that CEO role. Melville was previously with Meyer. Meyer is noted as being a bankroller for Fresh Time in the past, so that makes sense. You feel like those two companies a little bit more in cahoots now. Cheryl is joined at Ascend by Dean Little and Nicole Hosh, who are both also at Fresh Time in the COO and CFO roles, respectively. They have the same roles at Ascend. So on the surface, this appears like a massive change of scenery for all three. You go from a Sprouts-like concept, which is something Fresh Time is very similar to. If you've been to a Sprouts, Fresh Time, very similar, not quite as upscale as Whole Foods. Not quite as altogether organic as a Whole Foods is, but also somewhat less expensive than a Whole Foods. They're moving from that to an Aldi-like concept, and they're moving from an area in the upper Midwest that Fresh Time was heavily concentrated in to Florida. So they're not only changing concepts, but they're changing areas. But part of the reason I think this acquisition is notable is because of the changes Ascend is planning for these Florida Save-A-Lots, most of which by the way, are in the greater Orlando area. Now, first, it's clear, based on an article in Supermarket News, that Ascend plans on growth. They're not just taking over these stores as a caretaker, not just 
working to squeeze some money out of them. They are looking for growth. They're looking for growth in new markets as well. They're seeking to complete rebrands to not only incorporate the new layout for most Save-A-Lot stores and also the new Save-A-Lot logo, but really they want to frame the stores as hometown grocery locations, which is something that's distinct from many other Save-A-Lot stores. And to help to differentiate their own concept from other Save-A-Lots that are out there, the leadership group at Ascend is looking to increase their store's selection of ethnic foods and also, and this is where the leadership's background comes in, they're seeking to expand the variety in their fresh sections. That includes produce and meats, and it's also going to include a focus on locally sourced products. If all of this sounds very similar to Fresh Time, if you're familiar with that concept, well, that's because it very much is. Ascend projects remodels for all of their Save-A-Lot acquisitions to be launched this year. As a chain, by the way, Save-A-Lot wants all their remodels to be completed in all stores by 2024, whether licensed or corporate-owned stores. So this acquisition here continues to whittle away at the low three figures worth of corporate-owned Save-A-Lot stores that are left, as now nearly 200 stores have been sold off since that December 2020 announcement for their latest pivot. They do plan, as I mentioned earlier, on retaining 21 stores in their home market of St. Louis, They want these stores to serve as a guinea pig of sorts. They want to test products, layouts, initiatives, and so forth. But they'll continue to sell off other corporate-owned stores as they go. No word yet on whether Ascend is primed to take over some of the additional stores after their original Orlando acquisition or Orlando area acquisition. Now, if you zoom out a little bit on this deal, given the metal of the leadership at Ascend, And where Save-A-Lot is as a company, you really do have to wonder about the long-term ramifications of this deal. Not only could Ascend potentially purchase additional Save-A-Lot stores, but Yellow Banana, as another one of those acquiring companies, also noted a willingness to grow their own acquisition stocking of local and regional SKUs. Yellow Banana, mostly in the upper Midwest, Texas, and also Florida. But when you look at Ascend, their team is driven basically by the same group that helped Fresh Time grow from one location to around 75 within the span of a decade. And you could argue that this expansion for Fresh Time had its own ups and downs. They opened and subsequently closed five stores in Nebraska markets, as an example. It was kind of trial and error there. They have shown an ability to quickly scale, and they built a reputation for excellent merchandising and customer service. If you've ever been in a Fresh Time store, You can attest to this. Also, because there was some likely cross-pollination with Meyer due to that financial backing, you have to think that that kind of plays into the mindset, the experience, the base that Ascend is going to bring to the table for these Save-A-Lot stores. And you could make an argument that this move positions Ascend to grow into new markets in the future as long as they don't step on the toes of other licensees. And that's something they have mentioned time and again whether it be in press releases, whether it be in news stories, those new markets, which suggests potentially new Save-A-Lot stores may be specific to this Ascend concept. And we typically on this show don't focus on a deal like this that just has to do with one market or one area of one state. But this deal seems different. It seems like this could be a deal that really serves as a springboard for both Ascend and Save-A-Lot and Save-A-Lot's new concept going into the future. You've got 
a high amount of store brands, of private label products mixed with local organic produce, local organic meats, a large fresh selection, and so forth. Really things that Save-A-Lots haven't been known for in the future as much as they might want to be known for. And one other thing to note is that fresh time stores are usually heartily staffed. When you go back to that chain, usually a lot of people working at any given time. Save-A-Lots are historically not. In fact, that's kind of their calling card. When you go to their franchise or their licensee website, they'll say, hey, you only have to run a store with two or maybe three people on staff at a given time, depending on your sales levels. When you look at this deal alone, the 33 stores, that involves just 400 associates. So an average of around 12 per store. And you have to wonder if Ascend changes this approach as well. Shoot, when you talk about two to three employees at any one time in a Save-A-Lot, a fresh time store will have two to three employees on the ground at any given time in their produce section alone, not to mention at the front end and all the other sections in the store. So you have to wonder if Ascend kind of pivots things a little bit more than Save-A-Lot already wants them to be pivoted and really increases the staffing of these stores as they complete the renovations so as to focus increasingly on those fresh sections of the store, which we know are major sections in terms of driving sales in this climate in 2020. We'll save a lot as a whole, partners with Instacart, and that makes, I guess, a good enough transition to our next small story. Wanted to keep it in grocery for this, but we got word this week that online grocery shopping may have taken a bit of a dive last summer, according to Brick Meets Clicks e-grocery performance benchmarking for the time frame of the summer of 2020 and 2021. These numbers are based on largely first-party transactional data from 876 grocery stores, cross-section of different grocery stores, different banners, and the like for the 12 weeks ending September 29th, 2020, and then September 28th, 2021, respectively. The data, by the way, includes that produced by friends of the podcast at Cardlytics, just for full disclosure. Now, this may not be as much of a shocker as it seems on the surface. You remember back to late summer 2020, the pandemic was still kind of in its early stages. Some areas of the country were able to move on faster than others. 2020, there was no vaccine out. People were a little less bullish in terms of going out into public. Still, data from this study suggests that the average weekly sales from online grocery orders declined by 6.8% at these grocers in 2021 versus 2020. Cart size or order value was down 3.9%. Transactions were down 3.1%. So they both played a share in the overall declines. Transactions, by the way, if you're curious, per store covered in the study averaged 172 per week during the 2021 survey period. I want you to think about that because we know online grocery certainly doesn't take up as much of a share of sales at any particular grocer as do in-store sales, but just 172 orders per store per week for these surveyed grocers. Cart size, though, did average a pretty high number, $106 in 2021. So compares favorably at many grocers versus those in-store shoppers. David Bishop, a partner at Brick Meets Click went further to add some color to the data. He noted that 
Their monthly surveys indicate that mass market retailers such as Walmart and Target, they're the ones driving online grocery gains in the U.S. We can take from this that some independents and smaller chains may have seen a more dramatic drop versus 2020 than their mass market brethren. In other words, smaller chains, independent grocery chains, customers, less likely year over year to be shopping online, ordering online through them. Other interesting facets of the study, the maturity of a retailer's online shopping platform turned out not to be significant. Before COVID, as an example, the maturity of a platform, how long it had been going, was a relatively solid predictor of online traffic with those programs that have been around for a longer period of time driving more traffic than those that had been around for a lesser period of time. Overall sales increased significantly for grocers when both curbside and delivery were offered as compared to only one of the two. We're talking in aggregate about a doubling of e-commerce sales for those stores offering both. And lest you think that most stores offer both, only 49% of the stores in the sample did. When both methods, both curbside and delivery, are offered, customer preference between delivery and curbside was shown to be split almost evenly, almost right down the middle at 50-50. And finally, stores in medium-sized markets actually scored higher online sales on a weekly basis versus large market stores. That's also a reversal from pre-COVID days. And this was attributed in the study in part to a wealth of competition for online orders in larger markets. If you're in a mid-sized market, fewer players for those online grocery orders. As such, the pie is split in fewer pieces, therefore your average weekly sales seem to be higher if you're in a medium-sized market. Additional data, by the way, from this study will be released over the next few months, and we'll certainly be looking forward to some of that important data. Well, coming up after this break, we'll talk about another study, the 2022 Retail Industry Outlook by way of Deloitte. We'll talk about where we're going in 2022, where retailers are planning on spending their money that all-important capex, where they're looking to improve things like supply chain, things like hiring, and what we can expect at a high level from consumers for the next 12 months. As we do every January, we enjoy looking to the year ahead in retail and what is in store for retailers as a whole. It's always interesting to parse out potential consumer trends, but more importantly, areas of opportunity and concern for retailers, developments, and where retailers are seeking internal growth. Perhaps no all-inclusive report does this better than Deloitte's annual retail industry outlook, and just last week they released their 2022 version. Here to discuss the data in detail is Rod Sides, Vice Chairman of Deloitte LLP, and U.S. retail, wholesale, and distribution leader. Rod, welcome back to the show. Thanks. Great to be with you again. All right. So first of all, can you give our listeners a bit of an overview as far as where the numbers come from, where the data comes from, and who you interview for this retail industry outlook? Well, this year we talked to about 50 retail executives across a number of companies. Most of them are with companies that are over a billion dollars in revenue a year. Most are much larger than that. So we spend a lot of time really understanding not only what's going to happen in apparel and department stores and mass and grocery, we, we want to make sure we get a good cross-section 
uh, retail executives. And then we also spent some time with a number of our partners who serve these clients every day. And we kind of mesh the two outlooks together in terms of what people are thinking as we go into 22. Well, let's look at some of the top line numbers, starting with the top line and revenue growth. What was expected as far as revenue growth coming up for the year ahead? Well, what's really interesting is that as we were thinking about what we think is going to happen with GDP, we estimate, our economists estimate that GDP is going to rise by about three and a half percent as we go through the year. And so we think that's going to translate into a really strong retail year, if you will. And when we talk to retail executives, about 54% of the folks we talked to expected growth up to 5%. So again, we're finding that a number of retail executives are pretty optimistic about the year and about 32% actually expected growth of more than 5% a year. So that's coming off a year, obviously, where we saw double-digit growth in retail. I do think we have some headwinds around inflation, some of the other things that we've talked about in 21 that we'll have to overcome. But I do think there's an optimism among retail executives that you know, we'll be able to weather the storm as well. Well, and you mentioned one of the challenges potentially ahead with inflation. What were some other opportunities and challenges that retailers noted? Well, there's a couple. I think there's going to be this continual evolution of digital and what that means to the business and how to engage with technology, not only from a customer experience perspective, but also how do you support the organization overall. I think that's going to be a big part of what we see as we go through the year. Workforce is going to be a big challenge and talent just in terms of kind of expectations of what employees and team members have today in terms of career track, et cetera. And there's a shortage of talent. So we know that unemployment is low. We know that a number of folks, at least on a temporary basis, left the workforce. And the question is, how do retailers compete for talent in today's market, whether it be you know, gig economy, there are other emerging formats that folks are looking to start careers in, et cetera. So I think that's going to be a challenge. And then this whole notion of climate change sustainability, the need to be transparent in terms of products, et cetera, that's going to be a big trend, we think, in 22, you know, as folks are focused a little more in that than perhaps they have been in the past. Now, I wanted to step back a little bit and talk on that so-called war on talent, because that was something that came up pretty regularly in the report. As far as kind of prioritizing talent as far as bringing people into the company. What were some specific things that you found retailers might look to employ in the year ahead? Well, there's several things. We know that there's been this challenge around starting pay and hourly rates, et cetera. And so there's been a, obviously a national debate on that. But you know, the other thing that's really interesting is that as retailers have increased starting pay and hourly wages, et cetera, there's still a challenge. Part of the challenge in retail is the ability to schedule some predictability into the lives of the associates. So if you think about a lot of store schedules today are posted maybe a week in advance, at most two weeks. And so what a lot of workers are telling us is they need more predictability. You know, I think the pandemic has required all of us to reprioritize what's important to us. And so being able to have that balance is something that you know, certainly a lot of folks are looking for. So that's going to be a a big challenge. I mean, when we talked about it, you know, about 74% of folks thought that the current customer facing positions would be challenging to fill in 2022. So again, lots of challenges there, less of a challenge in say supply chain distribution logistics, you know, because there are less workers that are needed there, et cetera. And it's a little bit different working environment, but that has been one of the key themes that I think we're going to see as we go into 22. 
Now, one of the other opportunities or challenge areas was supply chain, and I wanted to step back and talk a little bit about that. And what you uncovered is there's quite a few plans to invest. We know CapEx across the board for retailers expected to go up just in aggregate, but what are some ways in which companies are looking to invest in supply chain to maybe make it more stable in 2022? Well, what's really interesting is that, you know, when we ask folks, what are they going to invest in? A lot of the company's current systems, their ERP systems, there's a big investment going on there with major upgrades to modules. So about 40% of the folks said they were working on their core systems. And that was followed closely by inventory management. So what that tells you is the, the need to have accurate inventory, know where it's located, et cetera, so you can fulfill the orders regardless of where they come from is super important. And so, you know, as we looked at that overall, you know, we're at about 87% of total respondents said they were going to do something in that space or they felt like they were up to date in that particular area. But again, a major investment there, a lot of investment around things like supply chain analytics, fulfillment software, et cetera, less investment in things like logistics and transportation management systems. So, you know, a lot of that has been outsourced or a lot of companies have moved to third parties around that. So what we're finding is kind of the core of how do you analyze and, and create the algorithms to determine the best modes and nodes of transportation are really important. That's where a lot of the money's going. Kind of a constant theme throughout the report is the more or less division of companies into what are called leaders and laggards there. And I was curious if you could kind of walk us through some of the characteristics that defines each group, whether a retailer might end up in that leader group or in the laggard group. Yeah, what we did was we wanted to really understand were there strategic trends that made sense for folks who were leading the industry. And so what we simply did is we took annual revenue growth for the most recently completed fiscal year where we could get public information. And so we looked at that as one element to determine in what category do individual companies fall. And then we looked at the portion of revenue that's derived from digital channels for the most current year with the notion that, you know, a lot of this movement is moving to a digital and online type business. So again, we factored that in. And then we looked at confidence in the individual executive that we talked to, their organization's ability to execute their business strategy. And so we had, you know, the folks that we talked to help us with that classification. So what we came out with was of the 50 respondents we had from uh, across the industry, we simply split it. And we said that the top 25 of the aggregate scores we just talked about were classified as leaders. Uh, about 25% of the bottom in that aggregate score we said were laggards, and we left the rest of them in the middle around that. And so we then spent some time to understand what are the steps they're taking strategically to differentiate in a pretty crowded retail market. And so that's how we got to the leaders laggards idea in this particular report. And so let's talk about the leaders a, a little bit in terms of best practices going forward. I know one of the things you mentioned was certainly the willingness to bring in outside partners, bring in third parties, maybe not do everything in-house. What are we seeing as far as leaders are concerned in terms of those partnerships? Well, it's really interesting when we talk to the respondents, we ask, so are you going to outsource wherever possible? And should that be high priority? For leaders, only 9% said that was a priority. Laggers, 31% said that was a priority. So what that tells us is leaders are building capability, end-to-end -end capability within your organization and not embracing this whole notion of being able to outsource for critical talent that they need. 
when we talk about automation, what we find is leaders are automating wherever possible and it's a high priority. So about 82% of those, laggards only 46%. So again, they're embracing, leaders are embracing automation. And it's really not to replace labor in my mind, it's to reallocate labor in areas where they need that expertise. And then the same thing in terms of looking at improving the overall employee experience, leaders, 91%, said they're focused on that to be able to retain talent, where the laggards is only about 69%. So you can see a real difference in strategies and philosophies among leaders and laggards when you get into those particular elements. Now, I wanted to talk briefly about marketing because marketing spend is something that we've seen shift pretty dramatically over the last 10 to 20 years in terms of more companies spending in the digital realm. What are we seeing as far as leaders and laggards are concerned in terms of planned marketing spend? Well, it's really interesting when you look at the marketing overall, what we're finding is that folks are reevaluating the overall mix, right? So several years ago, we saw this major move to digital advertising. And so there were a lot of folks who were moving down, if you will, down that path. And so now what we're finding is they are starting to rethink the overall mix of what that looks like. And so that is really interesting in terms of understanding where that goes around there. So we're finding that a number of the leaders are spending time rethinking that allocation, whereas laggards are generally just kind of throwing money at the wall to see what sticks. As we close out here, I wanted to focus on the consumer just a little bit because the lion's share of this report, of course, focuses on retailers, but there were some interesting consumer numbers. What are some expectations coming up for the consumer over the next year? Well, we think the consumer is going to be obviously a vital part to where the industry goes around that. And, you know, what consumers are telling us is they really want more and more transparency around products, where the products are coming from, et cetera. What is the role that a lot of folks are spending in the marketplace around that? So, and the consumers, I think, are going to kind of come into the market and drive it around that. And that's exactly what we found. So, again, we're finding that a lot of folks are really wanting to understand what role the retailer plays in their communities, et cetera. And they're using that to make decisions about where they choose to shop. And is there an area we can expect maybe consumer spending to go up in over the next year or so? We think services are going to be a big part of that. So generally what we found during COVID was the services related revenue as part of retail had declined. And we found that it came back pretty dramatically as we were going through the last holiday period. We think durables for the most part will decline because there was such strong growth in that category in 2021. That it just, you know, from an overall perspective, we see that declining, you know, and if you think about consumables, I think a lot of those will kind of hold their own as we go into 22 from that perspective. So I think there's going to be an interesting mix shift. We found that again back in the holiday spending back a month or so ago that we got into more of a normal mix, normal being what we've seen in, in 18 and 19 with 2020 being a little bit of an anomaly. And so I think we're going to see more of that even mix as we go into 22. Well, fantastic insight as always, Rod. We thank you for joining us here to discuss that retail industry outlook. Great. Thanks for having me. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts.
As always, it's an absolute pleasure to have Rod join us on the show. We thank him certainly for taking the time for us. The folks at Deloitte, great to work with, and we're very happy to continue our partnership with them in 2022 as far as talking about some of these very important retail reports on the podcast. Well, in our Looking Ahead segment this week, I want to look ahead to the Midwest and Great Plains. We talked a bit about Florida retail in the first segment out of necessity with the Save-A-Lot sale. Next week, we'll see earnings reports come out from Boot Barn and Tractor Supply Company. Boot Barn, in particular, is one of those companies that you get the feeling that they're really trying to stake their claim to legitimacy, saying to folks on Wall Street and elsewhere, hey, the middle of the United States is very important in terms of retail sales, in terms of where those folks are spending their money. Tractor Supply Company, the reason they're important, they're kind of a necessary proxy, necessary bellwether, if you will, for the farm and home segment because so many companies, all the fleet farms of the world, the big R's of the world, are privately held, the Atwoods of the world, which, by the way, Atwoods continues to grow as a chain. It seems like sales pretty decent there. They're adding their 69th store this year in Hutchinson, Kansas, their last couple of stores, actually, in former Kmart locations, the Hutchinson location will be no different. But those stores, as I mentioned, those are privately held. Orschland, another one. So Tractor Supply Company, really that proxy for how the farm and home segment is doing overall. They are the largest of those particular chains. And these earnings reports will tell us something, certainly, about how retail is going in middle America and the regionality of things. Tractor Supply Company is so great on their earnings calls with breaking things down region by region, and certainly we're expecting some of that coming up on this earnings call. I've said it before on the podcast. I'll say it again. I feel like rural America, small to mid-sized markets, they give you perhaps a better indicator versus the large markets in terms of the overall health of retail here in the United States. I feel very strongly that Boot Barn Tractor Supply Company, they're both a window into that retailing world. We talk about Hibbit in another sector as being kind of the sports retail version of that. We talk about Dollar General and Family Dollar doing the same thing for general merchandising. So very important earnings calls, at least in my opinion, coming up next week. And there'll be earnings calls that we'll be sure to take a look at just in terms of sales trends, but also the company's expectations. So not only looking at Q4 of last year, but looking at their expectations for the year ahead, especially since, as many are saying, and as Rod Sides of Deloitte said earlier in this very podcast, we expect sales for durable goods to tick down a little bit, and that might hinder some of the outlook for a retailer like Tractor Supply Company. Well, that'll do it for us here on this week's podcast. As I mentioned, next week's podcast will be delayed by just a couple of days as a result of my business travels to the greater Cincinnati area. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to visiting some of those flagship Kroger stores, if you will. But we thank you for listening, and we look forward to talking with you again a little bit over seven days from now. Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.